Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 43 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. A teenager is found bound, tortured and murdered in his own home. A suspect is apprehended and brought to trial. But could a family member really be responsible? And was the right person behind bars? New evidence discovered by television researchers and the organisation Justice, the time factor that suggests it would have been impossible for her to commit the murder, and in particular forensic evidence that he says wasn't properly considered at the trial. Bamber Bridge is a small village in Lancashire, just a few miles from Preston. The location, referred to by locals as the Brick, is known for the Battle of Bamber Bridge. When US troops moved to Britain in anticipation of the D-Day landings, soldiers from a racially segregated Air Force unit were stationed in the village. Following the 1943 Detroit race riot, which stemmed from increasing tension against segregation and Jim Crow laws in America, 
the military police in Bamba Bridge became concerned, so they restricted the troops' recreational time. According to Lancashire Live, the locals in Bamba Bridge sided with the soldiers. They even posted signs in pub windows that read, Black Troops Only. On the night of June 24th, a fight broke out between the military police and the troops, resulting in one death, many injuries and 32 black soldiers being convicted by a court-martial. Today, Bamba Bridge is a mixture of charming thatch cottages and new-build properties. But there was a period of time during early 1979 when the small village became known for an entirely different, horrifying reason. On Thursday, February 22nd, 1979, 18-year-old Leslie Matthews left a local pub and paused on his way to pick up some chips for his walk back home to the Crescent, a semicircular street off Collins Road. When Leslie walked through the front door, he saw that his mother and two of her friends, Mrs. Livesey and Mrs. Rogers, were drinking in the living room. It was just after 11pm on a bitterly cold winter night. The women were discussing their teenage sons, who had recently been getting into trouble. In fact, Mrs. Livesey, who lived at the other end of the street, had just seen Leslie's brother, 14-year-old Andrew Matthews, and his friend, 17-year-old Tommy Rogers, ducking beneath the windowsill before she came in. Andrew was meant to be staying in, but he and Tommy had snuck out to attend a local underage disco. Mrs. Livesey's son, Alan, was around the same age as the teenage boys, and she had warned him to stay at home that night before she went to the village pub to have a few drinks. Aware that Andrew and Tommy were outside, Mrs. Livesey asked Leslie Matthews for a favour. Would he mind calling in to check on Alan while he was out looking for his younger brother? Leslie Matthews and Mrs. Rogers' 13-year-old son Tony went out to find them. It seemed likely that they were with Alan Livesey, so Leslie and Tony set off in the direction of the Livesey home. Tony went around the back of the property while Leslie knocked on the front door. There was no answer, and the door was locked. It was strange. Maybe Alan had defied his mother and was out somewhere with his friends. After not getting a response... Leslie did not want to wait in the cold any longer. It appeared Alan was not around, or he simply did not hear the knocks at the door. Leslie Matthews went back home and told Alan's mother that no one answered. Mrs. Livesey said that Alan had probably gone to sleep, but Leslie pointed out that the curtains were open. Mrs. Livesey remarked that Alan was never bothered by that. He would just go to sleep. She handed Leslie the front door key and requested that he go back and check on Alan for peace of mind. Her husband Bob was working a night shift at Leyland Motors and Mrs. Livesey wanted to be sure the 14-year-old was okay. 
Leslie Matthews went back to the property and unlocked the door. As he entered, a strong odour filled his nostrils. The smell was familiar and pungent. The property was filled with gas. He then spotted Alan Livesey laying on the floor between the sofa and the fireplace. He was dressed in full army fatigues. Alan would usually wear the uniform when he went to cadets. Leslie initially thought that Alan was playing a prank, but the teenager's hands were bound behind his back. Leslie reached down to roll Alan over and recoiled in horror, as when he moved his friend he felt dampness on his hands. When Leslie peered down, His fingers and palms were covered in blood. Alan's cadet uniform was heavily stained, and there were red socks around his neck. As Leslie removed them, he saw numerous gashes on the boy's neck. Unsure of what to do, Leslie attempted to give Alan mouth to mouth, but with each breath of air, blood gurgled out from the wounds to Alan's throat. Leslie ran back home and frantically told Alan's mother what had happened, and together they rushed back to the house. When they arrived, two young locals, Andrew Matthews and Tommy Rogers, who had previously been seen playing outside, were standing near the property. Leslie grabbed Tommy and asked him if he had been with Alan, and if he had, what had he done to him? Both boys denied seeing Alan Livesey that night. Upon seeing her son's body, Margaret Livesey dropped to her knees and called out his name. Leslie Matthews later recalled Alan's mother trying to unsuccessfully close her son's eyes. She had told Leslie, I don't want him to die with his eyes open. Worried about the smell of gas in the house, Leslie went to open the windows, but Margaret Livesey instructed him to call the police. Leslie ran to the nearest phone box. By this time, it was 11.28pm. While Leslie was outside, Margaret checked if the back door was unlocked. She noticed that the gas taps on the cooker were turned on, so she switched them off before returning to her son's body. Andrew Matthews and Tommy Rogers came into the home, and Tommy sat on a chair in silence. Andrew said, Good grief, he's covered in blood, and he's got his army uniform on. Is he dead? At this point, Margaret Livesey then realised the gas fireplace had been turned on, but was unlit. Gas was still flowing through the property, so she turned it off. Margaret told Andrew and Tommy to go home, as they appeared upset by the horrifying scene. Sergeant James Patterson arrived just after 11.30pm. The officer heard Leslie Matthews say, He's dead. They've stabbed him. The house was still full of gas, so the windows were open to clear the air. 
seven minutes later. Alan Livesey was pronounced dead by Deputy Police Surgeon Dr Phillips. The 14-year-old had been rolled over onto his back when he was found by Leslie Matthews. There did not seem to be any sign of a struggle. Alan's blood was contained within the immediate area where he was found. It had saturated the living room carpet, underneath his body and around him. Forensic examiners explored the property, looking for blood on the walls or furniture. If Alan had been standing when he was attacked, there would have been blood spatter at the respective height, but none was visible. Alan's hands had been bound behind his back with a necktie in an intricate knot, looping around both wrists twice and tied in the middle, pulling his hands together. His army cadet uniform, which was usually neatly pressed, was creased and bunched up as though someone had put their weight on him as he lay on the floor. The pullover element of his uniform had been pulled up to his chest with the lower edge tucked under itself. Alan's shirt was slightly parted, and his belt was undone. Next to his body lay some red socks and an emery cloth. Margaret Livesey's jacket and handbag were on the settee. Blood staining was seen on the socks, the carpet, and newspapers strewn around on the seating area, by the hearth of the fireplace, and beside Alan's feet. While the room was in disarray, there was no evidence to indicate there had been a struggle. A home office pathologist, Dr John Benstead, was called to the scene. In his report, the doctor wrote that at 2.40am, Alan Livesey's body temperature was 34.6 degrees Celsius. Lividity had begun to develop on the back of Alan's thighs, and rigor mortis had fully set in his legs. Photographs were taken of the scene before the body was taken to the coroner's office for a post-mortem examination. It commenced at 3.05am. Some red socks had also been recovered for further examination. The young teenager had sustained around 10 stab wounds. The majority of them had gone into the body and caused significant injuries. Others struck the pathologist as peculiar. Some of the knife wounds were superficial cuts. One such injury was found on Alan's right eyelid. It had not pierced the eye, so whoever had inflicted the injury had done so with a significant degree of control and concentration. Other superficial wounds were found on his right cheek, the side of his jaw, his neck, his chin, and three semicircular marks measured 0.2 inches in diameter on his left forearm. A two-inch wound near Alan's jaw had nicked his spine. Two other four-inch injuries in the centre and right side of his neck had cut through the spine. The knife went through the other side of his neck, one exiting the body at the nape and the other above the left shoulder blade. Of the four wounds to his chest, one had not penetrated the chest wall. 
Another had pierced through the nipple and the lower part of the fourth rib cartilage before piercing the left ventricle of the heart to a depth of at least 3.5 inches. Alan's extensive injuries did not end there. The third wound on the left side of the chest had passed between the ribs perforating the left lung. The fourth on the right side of the chest chipped and broke the seventh right rib and perforated the middle lobe of the right lung. A sample of Alan Livesey's blood was taken to compare it with blood discovered at the scene. His blood type was B, with A as the EAP genetic marker. EAP stands for erythrocyte acid phosphatase, an enzyme found in the blood. At the time, DNA analysis did not exist, so phenotyping of blood was undertaken for elimination purposes. The teenage boy's stomach still contained food which showed little digestion. This proved that he had eaten shortly before he died. Analyse's cause of death was due to shock and blood loss resulting from multiple stab wounds. Dr. Benstead believed that great force was needed to create the wounds in the neck which partially cut through the spine. At least considerable force was required to generate the wounds through the left nipple and into the right part of the chest. It was difficult for the pathologist to determine Alan's time of death. In the 1970s, the most common method for determining how long someone had been dead was taking the deceased's body temperature, usually via the liver. Despite there only being a few hours between Alan being seen alive and when he was found dead, a more accurate time of death would assist the investigators in their search for the killer. It was 12 degrees Celsius in the room. The gas fire was not lit and the windows had been opened. Because of this, the ambient temperature surrounding Alan's body interfered with the result. By the time the post-mortem was carried out, pathologist Dr. John Benstead had estimated that Alan had died during the late evening of February 22nd, not long before he was found. The forensic analysis of the scene and items recovered was carried out by Michael John Harris from the Home Office Forensic Science Laboratory. The socks found by Alan's body had been pierced numerous times with a knife. Human flesh and blood were discovered on the fibres, indicating that the killer had placed the socks over Alan's neck as they stabbed him. This explained the lack of blood spatter. On Margaret Livesey's jacket there was heavy blood staining found on the inside and outside of the lower front and light blood staining on the inside and outside of the right sleeve. Other parts of the jacket were tested with chemicals. The samples gave a positive reaction to the presence of blood, but no further blood stains were seen. It was concluded this was her son's blood. On Margaret's sweater there were two small blood stains and what looked to be a small fleck of dried blood on the lower front of her skirt. The blood from her sweater sleeve was determined to be type O, so did not belong to Alan. 
There were small areas of blood staining found on the upper front of Leslie Matthews' jacket and sweater. Blood on the knees of his trousers and upper toe areas of his boots were all deemed to be consistent with having leaned over Alan to attempt to give him mouth to mouth. By 1979, Margaret and Bob Livesey had been living at number 41 The Crescent for six years. They had three children, 19-year-old Derek, 18-year-old Janet, and their youngest 14-year-old Alan. Derek was deployed with the armed forces in Germany, and Janet had married young. She lived with her husband and was expecting their first child. Alan was the last of the Livesey children still living with his parents. Everyone on the Crescent knew one another, and like most small communities, everyone believed they knew everyone else's business. Alan Livesey was born on October 27, 1964. He attended St Saviour's Primary School. At the time of his death, Alan was in Form 3N at Walton Dale High School. Alan had joined the Army Cadets in September 1977. His mother had been part of the Army Cadets' parents' committee working as the treasurer, but she said there had been a dispute between the members. In the lead-up to her son's death, Margaret Livesey had not been able to attend committee meetings because she was busy with her daughter's wedding. Furthermore, she was suffering from a foot injury. She had torn ligaments after a bicycle accident in November 1978. Unable to dedicate the time needed for the position, Margaret was voted out of the role of treasurer. Even though Alan's mother no longer had a role to play in the cadets' committee, Alan still attended gatherings twice a week. He loved being there. Alan was given the responsibility of buying his own boots because he had gone through three pairs in the 18 months since he joined. The 14-year-old had various friends on the estate where he lived. One such friend was Andrew Matthews, who Alan was particularly close with. Both boys had several run-ins with the law. Alan Livesey had first got into trouble with the police when he and a friend who lived at the local children's home had climbed onto the roof of their school. The boys were brought before the juvenile court as a result. Alan was also arrested on February 10th, just two weeks before his murder. He had stolen a car before crashing the vehicle and was due to attend court for a second time. Margaret Livesey was interviewed the day after her son's death. She provided a timeline leading up to the incident. On the day in question, she said that from 12.30pm until 5.30pm, she went to work at her part-time carer's job at an old person's home on Cottage Lane in Bamber Bridge. The journey was 15 minutes there and back. 
Her husband Bob was at home, sleeping as he worked nights, and Alan was at home too because it was a school holiday. Prior to that, Alan had been accompanying his mother when she went to work, but his father believed that at 14, Alan was old enough to stay home on his own. Alan Livesey delivered newspapers during the week to around 300 properties in the Crescent and the surrounding housing estates. When Margaret got home just before 6pm, along with her husband and Alan, they had dinner together and Bob left for work at around 7.15pm. Margaret and Alan watched the television show The Six Million Dollar Man. Then there was a knock at the door. It was Mrs Matthews who asked if they had seen her son Andrew. Andrew Matthews had also been getting into trouble with the police. He and Tommy Rogers were due to go to court, so Margaret understood the concern, but they had not seen him. When the television show ended, Margaret and Alan walked to the off-licence on Brindle Road where Margaret purchased two bottles of cider and a pair of tights. Alan kept asking his mother to buy him some toffees, but she refused. Margaret had already given her son some money for sweets earlier that day, before she went to work. They got back to the house at around 8.15pm. As they had walked home, Margaret spoke to Alan about his behaviour and the financial strain his actions had placed on the family. They were liable for the damage to the car he had stolen, and there would likely be a court fine. Back at the house, Alan suggested to his mother that she should go out for a drink. She usually met with her friend Marion Walker on Thursday nights at the Queen's Hotel. Margaret did not want to leave her son alone, especially considering his past behaviour. However, eventually she decided to go out when Alan convinced her he would stay at home, and more importantly, stay out of trouble. Margaret told the police that Alan had not been wearing his cadet uniform when she saw him earlier on the night he died. He had been wearing a beige t-shirt that read, I'm with stupid a brown cardigan and jeans. These items were retrieved as evidence, along with the clothing that Margaret and Leslie had been wearing. Margaret Livesey left the house at around 8.50pm and walked the 20-minute journey to the Queen's Hotel. She met her friend Marion, and an hour later they were joined by Frank Bamber, a man Margaret Livesey admitted to having an affair with several years earlier. She stayed in the pub until closing time at around 10.50pm, and when it was time to leave, she got a lift to the junction at Collins Road before walking in the direction of home. When she got to the Crescent at around 11pm, she saw Tommy and Andrew sneaking around Mrs Matthews' garden. Mrs. Matthews was looking out of the window. Andrew was hiding beneath the window ledge while Tommy was behind a hedge. When they knew they had both been spotted, Tommy ran. Margaret asked Andrew if he wanted to talk to her about any trouble he had caused, but he declined before running off in the direction of the Livesey home, as Tommy had. 
Margaret went and knocked on the window to let Mrs. Matthews know that she had seen Andrew, and Mrs. Matthews invited her in for a drink with Mr. Matthews and Mrs. Rogers. Leslie Matthews came home shortly after. Margaret was concerned that the teenagers had gone to see Alan, so she asked Leslie to check if they were there and if her son was okay. After Leslie found Alan's body, he rushed back and was clearly distressed. That's when the night unravelled. Leslie Matthews' hands and clothes were bloodstained. He perched himself on a chair just before he told Margaret Livesey not to go back home because something terrible had happened. But she ran there with him anyway and saw Alan lying dead on the living room floor. Tommy Rogers and Andrew Matthews, Leslie's brother, were standing outside near the house and Leslie asked them if they had been with Alan. They said they had not. The police went door-to-door as part of their inquiries. Some of the neighbours told officers about hearing noises from the Livesey's home on the night of the murder, but they could not be precise about the time, nor did they have any clue what the noises were. Some locals on the Crescent said that Alan would sometimes have friends over in the evenings while his father was working. His mother was often out. A potential witness called Peter Nightingale went to the police a day after the murder with information he believed was relevant. Peter said that around 9.50 that night, he had left his friend's home and walked towards his sister's. Susan Warren lived next door to the Livses. Peter described how he was about to climb over the fence into the back garden when he heard the noise of the bolt on the Livesey's kitchen door being pulled back. He saw a young man around 5 feet 10 inches tall with white blonde hair that bounced. The young man walked out of the back garden before hopping the fence and disappearing from view. Peter said he believed the person was wearing an anorak because he heard the material brushing against itself. The sound was likened to a nylon windbreaker jacket. Susan Warren was interviewed by the police. She corroborated the fact that Peter had come over when he said he had. She explained that she did not hear much bar something which sounded like Alan messing around, and later she heard Margaret cry out, He's bloody dead. Susan's boyfriend, Ronald Mason, also gave a statement to the police. He said that he had heard some noises just as the television crime drama The Streets of San Francisco was ending at 5 to 10. Like his partner, Ronald described the various shouts he heard as sounding like Alan was messing around with his friends before overhearing a commotion when Alan's body was found. Investigators had still not located the murder weapon, despite searching the home, the surrounding street and even wasteland nearby, believing they might find a knife used in the attack. Initially, the police believed that Alan Livesey had been killed by someone he had invited to the home, 
so detectives began to inquire with his school and the army cadets to see if Alan had been hanging around with anyone, who matched the description that Peter Nightingale had provided. Alan's father Bob told the press, I don't know who would want to do this to my son. According to the officer who led the investigation, Detective Chief Superintendent Ian Hunter, members of the press told the police that neighbours knew more than they had let on. That appeared to be the case when Susan Warren was re-interviewed on February 26th. Susan told the police that she had spoken to Margaret Livesey on several occasions. Margaret had mentioned that she did not plan on getting pregnant when Alan was conceived. Margaret allegedly told Susan that she did not care what had happened to her son after he got in trouble with the police. According to Susan, Margaret always seemed to pick on the boy. Susan said that she could hear Margaret shouting at Alan most days, and based on their interactions... It was obvious to her that Margaret had been, quote, pasting him. Susan Warren went on to say that on the night Alan Livesey was killed, she recalled hearing Margaret shouting at Alan just before 11pm, and Alan was shouting back. Susan believed that Alan was defending himself, and the shouting stopped after a few seconds. She heard nothing more until 11.10 or 11.15pm when Margaret began shouting, He's bloody dead. Susan then said she looked out of the window and saw Leslie Matthews run towards Collins Road where the phone box was located. Officers went back to the Livesey household again having initially failed to find the murder weapon. They took every knife from the property to determine if any of them could have been used. Only one matched the detail noted in the forensic officer's report. This knife had been recovered from a drawer in a unit by the kitchen sink. It had a wooden handle and one of the rivets was missing. The knife was 0.6 inches wide and 4.6 inches long so it was the right size to have inflicted the wounds. However, no traces of blood or fibres from the socks were found on the blade. The following day, another local woman provided a statement to the police. Christine Norris lived at number 43 with her two young children. Although her home and the Livesey residence did not share an adjoining wall, they shared a front gate and pathway. Christine told the police that she had noticed that for as long as she could recall, Margaret Livesey had been going to the off-licence every night. Christine said that Margaret had spoken to her about the trouble Alan was in with the police, and from then on, according to Christine, quote, she never seemed to have any patience at all with him. I got the impression that Alan was a nuisance to Margaret more than her being upset by the police coming to her house. If he got in her way, she would hit him, and she just had no patience for him to be near her. These were irritable slaps rather than hitting him with much force. 
Christine described how on the night Alan was murdered, she watched the streets of San Francisco, which ran along with advertisements from 9pm until the 10 o'clock news. Christine got into bed and began reading a book before trying to fall asleep at around 10.30. Sometime later, Christine heard Margaret Livesey shouting at Alan, and retaliating, Alan began to shout back. Christine said that she had heard Alan shout, Help me, before things went quiet. Soon after, she heard banging on a window and door, as well as the front gate being opened and closed. When Christine looked outside, she saw Leslie Matthews and a policeman walking towards the Livesey's home. Present residents Christine Norris and Susan Warren had not initially provided the police with this further information when they were asked if they had heard anything. Christine later said it was because she did not want to get involved. Ronald Mason, Susan's boyfriend, did not specifically recall hearing Margaret Livesey shouting. The police learned that the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, or NSPCC, had received a report about Margaret Livesey's alleged abuse of her son. Still, when inquiries were made, they went nowhere. Alan denied that his mother had hit him and showed no physical signs of being abused. However, whispers circulated around the Crescent. More people began to suspect that Margaret Livesey had killed her son. But that theory did not explain the person Peter Nightingale had claimed he witnessed leaving through the kitchen door just before 10pm, or how Margaret would have had time to kill Alan between getting dropped off on Collins Road after leaving the Queen's Hotel and arriving at the Matthews' home. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. 
Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Based on the discrepancies highlighted in Margaret Livesey's account when compared to her neighbour's statements, she was asked to return to the station on February 27th, five days after her son's body was found. Margaret arrived at 4pm and was taken to an interview room where she was questioned by Detective Inspector Harry Mariner and Detective Sergeant Donald Biscom. By this point, Margaret had been interviewed twice. Each time she had given the same version of events and a consistent chronology of her whereabouts and actions. As the interview began, Margaret recounted the same information she had given in her previous statements, but one of the detectives informed her that according to her neighbours, she was home at 11pm around 20 minutes before she said she saw Alan's lifeless body with Leslie Matthews. Margaret replied, I'm sorry, but they're mistaken. I never went into that house from 9 o'clock until 20 past 11. Do you really think that I could murder my own son? I'm sorry, but I've cooperated with the police. I could have said I was in shock and didn't want to be interviewed. After reiterating her earlier statement again, D.I. Mariner said, Margaret, you tried to get Andrew to go back to your house, but he ran away. Then Leslie went but couldn't get in. So you gave him the key to get in. And I think the reason for doing this is because you knew Alan was lying dead on the floor and you wanted somebody else to find his body. Isn't that right? Margaret replied, no, I'm sorry, you're wrong. I wouldn't harm a hair on his bloody head. I wouldn't and everybody knows that. Margaret was told that the neighbours had heard her shouting at 11 o'clock. She repeated that she had not been in the house from just before 9pm until she went there with Leslie at 11.20. Margaret began to get upset and said, while you're accusing me of this, the real murderer is going free and it will happen to somebody else. Margaret was asked why her neighbours had heard her shouting at Alan 
and she replied that he was always wanting something and would not do as he was told. She explained that only a week earlier she had found a watch in the lining of his coat and some new batteries, which made her think he had been shoplifting. Margaret did agree that she would get frustrated when Alan wore his cadet uniform if he wasn't attending cadets. Detective Inspector Mariner told Margaret, I'll tell you what I think happened. You were dropped off in Collins Road North after leaving the pub. Now did you chat in the car before you got out? Margaret appeared to get confused at this point and said, No, I went straight home. The detective did not miss a beat and responded, That's right, you got out of the car and walked straight to your house. Margaret denied what she had just said, but the detective reminded her of the exact words she had used. If she was at home, this would align precisely with the statements made from the neighbours who said they heard her shouting at Alan. D.S. Biscombe then said, Come on, Margaret, tell us what really happened. You had an argument with Alan before you went out, and obviously something happened when you got home that sparked it off again. At this point, Margaret began crying, and D.S. Biscombe told her that he was certain she went home at 11pm. Something reignited the argument between mother and son, and unfortunately it ended as it did. Margaret suddenly said, Well, if you say that I've done it, then I must have, but I can't remember. D.S. Biscombe told Alan's mother that she would remember if she just relaxed. It would come back to her. Margaret then started asking what her husband would say and what people would think. She said that she could not go back to the house and wondered if she would be able to get a home on another estate. D.S. Biscombe interrupted and moved the conversation back to that night, asking Margaret what door she went in after she went straight home. She said she thought she had gone in through the back door because she used the outside toilet. Margaret was asked if she had taken her coat off, and she said she did and threw it over the back of the chair. She could not remember what happened after that. Her tears turned to sobs. The eye mariner reminded Margaret that she had come home. She went to the toilet, took off her jacket and saw Alan standing there in his uniform. The officer asked if it was perhaps that that annoyed her. Margaret said that Alan was lying on the floor watching television and as soon as she saw him in his uniform, she thought he had been out. She said he kept denying it and denying it. The Espiscom asked her what she did after that and Margaret replied, Well, you know what I did then. I stabbed him and stabbed him. Margaret was asked if she had used a knife that the police had supposedly found above the fireplace, and she said no. It was a little kitchen knife that she saw on the settee. She thought she must have left it there earlier when she was peeling potatoes. Margaret Livesey was placed under arrest and asked if she wanted to make a statement. 
she replied. Yes, I'll make a statement. I want to get it all off my chest. I haven't slept for three days. You write it down. In a statement dictated by Margaret but written by Detective Superintendent Biscombe, she elaborated, explaining that she had stabbed Alan a number of times before he fell to the floor. She then stabbed him again in the throat. The statement reads that Margaret had completely lost control of herself and was thinking all the while, quote, You little bad sod. It continues that Margaret could not look at him, so she turned him over and took a tie from the clothes horse to bind his hands and make it look like someone else had done it. Next, Detective Biscombe wrote that Margaret said, When I think back, I must have walked round the Crescent and come up Collins Road North in the direction of my own house. I just couldn't believe that I had done it. After Leslie came back to the Matthews household to tell everyone that something had happened to Alan, Margaret told the officers, I was hoping at that time that he wasn't dead and everything would be all right. After explaining that she told Leslie to call the police, Margaret went on to say, I remember smelling gas and found that all the gas taps and fire had been turned on. Must have turned them on after stabbing Alan. I went and turned them off and then sat down in the living room to wait for the police to come. I can't remember what I did with the knife but it was a small one with a wooden handle and had a rivet missing from the handle. According to the dictated statement, Margaret Livesey specifically mentioned the only knife found in the house that could have caused Alan's injuries, which was discovered the previous day when the knives were analysed by the forensic officer. Margaret's statement made no mention of the socks that were found to have knife marks, along with flesh and blood intertwined in the material. Margaret Livesey was charged with her son's murder at 7.45pm, just under four hours after the interview began. After she was asked if she had any reply to the charge, Margaret said, I only wish to say that I am sorry for what I did. I didn't mean it to happen. I wouldn't for the world have harmed my son intentionally. I was under pressure at the time, and my mind must have snapped. I am sorry for the trouble I have caused the police, but honestly I did not realise I had done it until tonight. Margaret's eldest son Derek came to the station after being told that his mother had confessed. According to the police report, Margaret put her arms around him and said, I'm sorry, Derek. I'm sorry, son. Please forgive me. I don't know what made me do it. Margaret's husband Bob, who had been giving a statement at the same time as his wife, was also told that Margaret had confessed. When he came to see her, she said, I'm sorry, Bob. You know what he was like. He just drove me to it. Bob replied, Why didn't you tell me? We've talked about it for hours. 
I couldn't. I just couldn't, his wife said. Bob told her, you didn't have to do this. Margaret replied, I just snapped. I'm sorry. The following day, Margaret Livesey was brought to South Ribble Court in Leyland and remanded into custody. Before Margaret was due to appear in a further hearing on February 28th, she made another partial confession to the supervising police officer from the holding cells. A statement about this incident was written four months later. Officer Eileen Hart said that she spoke to Margaret after the defendant had a meeting with her solicitor. Hart asked Margaret if she was feeling all right. According to the officer, Margaret replied, I'm feeling a bit better now. He just asked me if I'd done it or not. I told him I had and he said that's all he wanted to know. Three days after she had confessed to killing her son, Margaret Livesey would retract her confession and claim she was coerced. She spoke of being in a state of shock, and during this vulnerable period, Margaret had allegedly been convinced by officers that she was responsible. During that time, there had been an alternative suspect, but by early March, that person was eliminated. On March 3rd, Peter Nightingale's brother told the police that Peter had lied about seeing a blonde-haired man leaving the Livesey's house on the night of the murder. According to Peter, he was visiting his sister Susan Warren, who lived next door to the Livesey family. Peter Nightingale was brought in for questioning, and a statement was typed up. It read in part, In reference to my previous statement, I would like to add that the person described did not exist. I made him up because I thought if I said I was about the Crescent, I would be blamed for it. I did not see anyone in the Crescent when I was there at 10 to 10 on the Thursday of the murder. The man described in previous statements did not exist. I'm sorry. I told my brother that I had told the police lies. In Detective Chief Superintendent Ian Hunter's book Murder in Lancashire, he explains that Margaret Livesey was suspected of killing her son after the detective examined the sleeves of the coat she had been wearing on the night of the murder and he, quote, became aware of a spray type of blood effect. These can only be formed through an arm movement such as a striking movement. DCS Hunter said that he contacted the forensic officer on the case, who agreed that the bloodstains could have been caused by a striking motion in an attack. In the report by forensic officer Michael John Harris, which was dated April 11th, he wrote there was light blood staining found on the right sleeve, but it was insufficient for testing to be carried out. The forensic officer also found blood on the inside right sleeve of the sweater Margaret Livesey was wearing, but this blood was type O, 
so it could have been Margaret's blood, but it definitely was not her son's. The interviewing officers had been briefed about this prior to interviewing Margaret Livesey on the day of her confession. Marion Walker and Frank Bamber, who had been with Margaret Livesey in the Queen's Hotel on the night of Alan's murder, had been interviewed in the first few days of the investigation. Marion said that Margaret had arrived a few minutes after she did that night. They drank with Frank Bamber until closing time, leaving the pub together at around 10.50pm. Margaret got into Frank's car and he drove to the junction at Collins Road where Margaret Livesey was dropped off. Frank Bamber said that he had been sleeping with Margaret for around a year. They had had an affair a few years prior, but they did not see each other for some time after she moved to a different property. The pair only met on Thursday nights, and he would accompany her on foot or drive her home. Then they would either have sex in her house or in Frank's car. Frank explained that when they had first begun the affair, on the handful of occasions he was invited back to Margaret's home on the Crescent, her children were always in bed, and her husband was out working. Frank informed the police that Margaret had told him very little about her home life, apart from the fact that her husband worked nights and her eldest son was in the army. Frank had been asked if Margaret had a temper, and he remarked that he had never witnessed her being angry. Only on one occasion did she seem agitated but not angry. He had dropped her off some distance from her home so as to not arouse suspicion. She slammed the car door telling him she would freeze due to the unforgiving weather at the time. Frank Bamber described how on the night Alan Livesey was killed, he believed Margaret had arrived at the pub sometime around 9.15pm. Along with Marion Walker, they drank until 10 to 11. Outside, they chatted for a while before Marion walked home, and Frank defrosted the car to drive Margaret back to her house. He said he drove down Station Road, turned up Smith Street, turned left on Brindle Road and left again onto Collins Road, stopping near the entrance to the Crescent. They spoke for a minute in the vehicle while Margaret Livesey finished her cigarette before she got out. Frank said to Margaret that he would see her the following Thursday, but her response was strange. If I am still living, she said. On the same day that police officer Eileen Hart wrote a statement about Margaret Livesey's confession in the court holding room, Bob Livesey made a follow-up statement. He said that his wife had told him a number of lies over the years regarding domestic matters such as paying bills. Bob also claimed that his wife had a bad temper, especially when fueled by alcohol. These incidents of drunken anger caused friction between the couple, which often resulted in arguments. Bob Livesey was brought to the station on the night Margaret confessed. 
When he asked her why she had done it, she replied, You didn't know him really. Before telling Bob about some batteries and a watch Alan had hidden, which she thought had been stolen. A day before Bob's statement on June 22nd, 1979, Detective Sergeant Biscombe had retraced the routes taken by all of those who orbited the case on the night of Alan's murder. The detective drove the route described by Frank Bamber from the Queen's Hotel to the junction across from the entrance to the Crescent. It had taken four minutes. B.S. Biscombe walked from this location to the Livs' home. He said it took him two minutes and twenty seconds. On foot, he travelled from the chip shop on Station Road along the route Leslie Matthews had described, and it took D.S. Biscombe seven minutes and forty seconds to get to the Matthews' home. Alan's friends Andrew Matthews and Tommy Rogers took the same journey home. Andrew specifically recalled seeing that the time on the clock outside the job centre on Station Road read 10.55pm, meaning they did not see Margaret Livesey until after 11pm. D.S. Biscombe walked from the Livesey's home around the Crescent and back towards the Matthews' home, as Margaret had said she must have done, and he timed this to take 2 minutes and 40 seconds. This meant that from the time Margaret was dropped off by Frank Bamber, she would have walked the two-minute and twenty-second journey to her house, killed Alan, and then walked the two-minute and forty-second journey back around where she was seen by Mrs Matthews at 11pm. If Frank Bamber had left the hotel at around 10.50, and it had taken four minutes to drive to the entrance of the Crescent, this meant Margaret Livesey killed her son in less than a minute before she went to the Matthews home. Leslie Matthews was said to have arrived at the property between ten past and quarter past eleven. The 18-year-old walked back and forth twice to the Livesey's home before he told Margaret something had happened to Alan, and then he ran to the phone box and called 999 at 11.28pm. The barmaid from the Queen's Hotel provided a statement and she recalled locking the doors at around 10.45 because she had to get a taxi home that was booked for that time. Margaret Livesey's trial began on July 2nd, 1979 at Preston Crown Court. By this point, Peter Nightingale, a brother to Margaret's neighbour Susan Warren, had reverted back to his original statement and claimed that he had in fact seen the man with very light hair leaving the Livesey's house at around 10 o'clock on the night of the murder. Peter Nightingale said he had felt under pressure to change his statement when he was re-interviewed again after Margaret Livesey's arrest. He claimed he had only said it was a lie so he could leave the station. The Livesey's neighbours, Christine Norris and Susan Warren, testified that they had heard an argument between Margaret Livesey and Alan at around 10.45pm. 
They were cross-examined by Margaret's barrister John Hugel QC. He was able to discredit their testimony about the timings. From the stand, Susan Warren said that she recalled overhearing an argument just before a television show called The City at Risk had ended. Susan Warren claimed it was 11pm, but the programme had in fact concluded at 11.15. The defence counsel suggested that the raised voices she had heard at the time was actually Margaret Livesey finding her son's body. Christine Norris testified that she had seen the time on the clock in her bedroom. The shouting she allegedly heard occurred between 10.30 and 11pm. Questions were asked concerning the witnesses. Why had they not told the police about what they heard until days after their initial interviews? Even Judge Tolbert, who was presiding over the case, interjected during Susan Warren's examination to say, I would like to ask you this. I can understand to some extent, though it is difficult to understand it fully, when somebody has been lying dead with a number of stab wounds. I can understand you not wanting to get involved. What I do not understand is why you, not wanting to get involved, made two statements which contained untruths. If you had said, I'm not going to say anything, that is understandable. But why go and say something which is plainly untrue? Why does that prevent you from getting involved? Susan Warren claimed she did not know why. Ronald Mason, who had been with Susan, was now saying he did not hear any arguments and his girlfriend had not mentioned them to him. The prosecution's case argued that Margaret Livesey had found Alan in the living room when she got home. She had taken her jacket off and grabbed a knife from the settee, stabbing him at least ten times prior to tying him up. The defendant then washed the blade before putting it away, turned on all the gas taps in the house and walked the long way round the crescent before seeing Mrs Matthews and drinking cider with her neighbours. Acting for the Crown, Joanne Bracewell QC told the jury that Margaret Livesey had tried to make it look as though someone else had carried out the killing. Alan Livesey's mother testified in her own defence, telling the jury that she had spoken to her son about the trouble he had been getting in with the police. They walked home from the off-licence after 8pm on the night he was killed. She said that she had begun to cry, and Alan had promised he would not get into any more trouble. Margaret then went to see her friend as she usually did. On the day Margaret Livesey had told police that she had killed her son, they had shown her crime scene photos of his body and asked her how she could kill such a, quote, bonny lad. The police had told her that her neighbours knew she hated her son and that she could not wait for him to be out of her sight. Margaret testified that the officers convinced her that she was guilty, and she believed them because she was on medication, and she had not slept in days. 
when all of the evidence had been presented and the jury were two days into their deliberations, a relative of one of the jurors fell seriously ill. They would not be able to continue. This meant there had to be a retrial. The second trial took place in the same court just eight days after a mistrial was declared. The same evidence was presented, the only difference being that Margaret's neighbours were aware that the timings based on television shows were inconsistent with the factual evidence. So they now said that it was earlier, sometime between 10.30 and 11pm. However, Margaret Livesey's barrister referred to Susan Warren's original statement from February 23rd, where she had said, If anyone had screamed during the evening, I'm certain I would have heard them. The jury was shown the knife it was alleged had been used in the killing. There were no traces of blood found, even inside the hole where a rivet was missing. They were also presented with the tie that had been used to bind Alan's wrists. Jurors were told that it was a complicated knot. Judge Talbot addressed the jury explaining that it was up to them whether or not to believe the accounts of Margaret Livesey's neighbours or statements from Peter Nightingale as the witness accounts had changed over time. Furthermore, Mrs. Matthews, who had originally said Margaret arrived at 11pm, was now saying in court that she arrived at 11.10pm. Unlike the first jury who were two days into deliberations and asked for more time before they were excused, the second jury returned a verdict within five hours. Margaret Livesey collapsed in the dock, as the verdict was read aloud. She was found guilty of her son's murder and sentenced to life in prison. In October 1983, the BBC programme Rough Justice aired an episode titled The Case of the Tortured Teenager. It was argued that Margaret Livesey had been wrongly convicted of her son's murder four years earlier. The case had been presented to the team who produced the television programme by Tom Sargent from Justice, the human rights charity in the UK that focused on reforming the justice system. A report on the inconsistencies featured interviews with key witnesses and experts in forensics. Professor James Cameron, the Secretary-General of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences, consulted with the reporters on the case and was under the impression that it involved, quote, homosexual bondage. This theory was based on the superficial injuries sustained by Alan Livesey. It was claimed that he had consented to having his hands tied and having someone sit on him before his killer slowly dragged the tip of the blade across his body and inflicted a litany of wounds through a pair of socks. Addressing the pathologist's conclusions, Professor Cameron reported the following. 
Quote, Dr. Benstead's findings taken at the scene at 2.40am, from the temperature, from the presence of rigor mortis, the muscle stiffness after death and the way in which the blood had pulled into the dependent parts, would suggest to me that probably death took place some five hours earlier, in other words in the region of probably 10.30pm or 10pm. He correctly states that the presence of food in the stomach is difficult to be sure of as an aid to the estimation of the time of death, yet his post-mortem report states there was little digestion of the stomach contents. We know for a fact that the deceased had a rather heavy meal at, or about six o'clock, of belly pork, carrots and both roast and boiled potatoes. Given that feature and given Dr. Benstead's findings, I would have estimated that that indicates something of approximately three to four hours after the last meal, which would place time of death between 9.30pm and 10.30pm. Taking all these factors into consideration, I would have thought that the time of death was probably in the region of 10 o'clock. Margaret Livesey had tried to close Alan's eyes when she saw his body. Leslie Matthews recounted this in his statement and during the trial. Alan Livesey's eyes were open during the post-mortem examination, which meant rigor mortis had set in. If Alan had been killed by his mother at 11pm, she would have been able to close his eyes 20 minutes later. Professor Cameron was also asked about the supposed murder weapon. He said... I would have doubted then that that was in fact the weapon that was used, because it had gone into the hilt. Obviously, with the looseness of the hilt, one would have anticipated trace evidence, which could not have been washed away easily by the perpetrator. If there had been an attempt to wash away the blood, it would have tended to have remained within the handle of the knife, along the edge of the non-cutting part of the knife. Margaret's neighbours were interviewed for the Rough Justice television show and they were now admitting that the noises they heard were after 11pm, likely from the time when Margaret and Leslie discovered Alan's body. The journalists also uncovered a new witness who said he had seen Margaret Livesey walking from Collins Road towards the Matthews house at 11pm and she said she was. Further contradictory evidence was presented. Margaret did not mention the red socks in her confession. The prosecution alleged that she had used them to cover the blood. Alan had no defensive wounds on his arms or hands, which suggested his hands had been tied behind his back before he was attacked, not after. His eyes were open when he died, but he had a cut along his right eyelid, which meant that his eyes had been closed. Margaret's confession differs from the statement she had dictated to the interviewing officers. The dictated statements account for the gas being turned on, how she was seen walking towards the Matthews home, and the knife she said she used. Lord Salmon, who had served as an appeal court judge, also analysed the case for the television programme. 
He said that the only thing written by Margaret Livesey was her response to the charges, which read in part, I honestly did not realise I had done it until tonight. Lord Salmon concluded that he could, quote, understand women sometimes getting provoked and dashing a son's head off. But what I find so hard in this particular case is that in the first instance, she goes and tortures the boy. It's obvious that he must have been terrified, and she'd been making him terrified by the slightest of knife cuts. She then committed six most vicious and frightful blows with the knife going through the chest, through the throat and the heart. It's most fantastic that a woman of her age could have done this to her son. I can't see it at all. Junior Home Office Minister David Meller made it clear cases are only reopened in exceptional circumstances and that Mrs Livesey was convicted on her own confession of guilt of a gruesome crime. It is apparent to us that the representations uh, newly received do merit a fresh police investigation and that is how we intend to proceed. As for who should carry out the investigation, I am of course aware and I indeed have already said that one of the central issues in this matter is the reliability of the admissions which Mrs. Livesey made to the police. I've therefore reached the view, without, of course, in any way prejudging the merits, that it would be right in these circumstances to have the inquiry... After the episode of Rough Justice aired, a review was prompted. It was carried out by another constabulary, the West Yorkshire Police. They discovered medical evidence that showed Alan had likely died an hour earlier than 11pm, the time that was presented at the trial. Margaret Livesey would have been in the Queen's Hotel at this time. However, despite this new evidence, the Home Office refused to allow the case to be referred to the Court of Appeal. Stan Thorne, an MP from Preston, spoke about the case in Parliament. The case of Margaret Livesey presently serving life imprisonment for the murder of her 14-year-old son, which I do not believe she committed. Stan Thorne called the Home Office memorandum, quote, one of the most shoddy pieces of work I have seen in my 10 years in the House of Commons. It was ill-researched, perverse in its argument and based upon biased and prejudiced investigation. The MP said that the Home Office statement that a referral was not justified as no significant facts had emerged was ignorant and that, quote, the court should decide such questions of evidence, not the politicians and civil servants in the Home Office. By that stage, Margaret Livesey had been in prison for six years. MP Stan Thorne was interviewed about the new evidence and how Margaret was coping behind bars. I think Professor Cameron's evidence as a forensic scientist on a number of things, such as the time of the actual death of the murdered boy, the sexual connotations in the type of torture that was inflicted on the boy, and several other factors which clearly 
didn't receive the police investigation that they merited at the time of Mrs Livesey's trial. I should imagine her optimism will increase markedly, and I'm glad about that. Life in style prison, where she's acting as a cook, uh, must be extremely difficult for a person who feels very strongly that they've been the subject of a miscarriage of justice. So hope is what we're giving to Mrs Livesey at the moment, and I think that's very necessary to her. The case finally went before the Court of Appeal the following year and was presented to Mr Justice McCowan, Mr Justice Brown, and Lord Chief Justice Lord Lane. Lord Lane had a colourful history with unsafe convictions, having represented the police in the case of Timothy Evans. Evans was wrongly convicted of murder before being hanged in 1950. Evans was posthumously pardoned due in part to the work by Ludwig Kennedy, a journalist and author. Kennedy later campaigned on behalf of the Birmingham Six, men who were falsely accused of committing IRA bombings. Lord Lane had rejected an appeal made by the Birmingham Six and called the witnesses unconvincing liars. The men were later freed on a subsequent appeal and Kennedy criticised Lord Lane's decision. Lord Lane had come under fire the previous year following another rough justice investigation about the case of Anthony Mycock, who was jailed for an aggravated robbery but was subsequently released. When Lord Lane presided over Margaret Lifts's appeal in 1986, he called the BBC coverage a deliberate attack on the integrity and reliability of the justice system. Lord Lane said that Margaret Livesey's conviction was not in any way unsatisfactory, and her appeal was rejected. So where are we now? Margaret Livesey remained in prison until 1989. When she was released on licence, she lived in Surrey near her daughter Janet until 2000, when she moved back to Lancashire to be close to her son. Margaret Livesey died of throat cancer in 2001. Both of her surviving children believed that their mother was innocent. The case fell into obscurity until 2016, when the Lancashire police announced that they would conduct a forensic review of the case to evaluate the need for a potential inquiry. Janet and Derek, Margaret's children, said in 2016... The family welcomed the decision of Lancashire Police to look again at the evidence in the case. Margaret consistently asserted her innocence of the charge of murdering her son, and the family are hoping that this investigation will establish that and identify the actual killer. No further updates on the case have been provided since. 
While some believe that an injustice was done to Margaret Livesey, the former lead investigator on the case, Ian Hunter, says in his book Murder in Lancashire that the only injustice committed was to Alan Livesey and to no other. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Chloe Cunningham, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. To hear ad-free episodes a few days before their general release, from both They Walk Among Us and our companion podcast, They Walk Among America, head to patreon.com forward slash they walk among us for more information on this episode please see the show notes or visit our website they walk among us podcast.com Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.